0: Hello, everyone, and good morning. Happy Father's Day to you all. Um, uh, so glad you're here and celebrating with us. Thank you so much, uh, all you dads that are part of the dad cohort with me. Uh, I don't know when it, when it gets more relaxing. I don't think it's going to. Uh, they come up with new things to stress you out on as they get older. Um, and so, yeah, we're all in this together. Brief question, how many of you can remember, like, the first family car when you were a kid? Like the first one you can remember, I remember ours, it was a Chevy Malibu, is the one that I remember, and it was, I don't know, 80s, maybe, say maybe 70-something, it was pretty old, <laughs> and I remember it, was, uh, it had no airbags, so Jake and I could sit right in the front seat, I sat in the middle, perfect spot for me, because the transmission well made it to where my short little legs could touch, and I was more comfortable, um, and I was, because I was short, I couldn't see out the windows, and so I got, I got to know the dash really well. Because it's all I could look at all the time. I remember the the knot on it. It had that fake 70s, 80s burled wood on the front. And I remember there was a knot that looked exactly like E.T. I remember when we would get bored, my mom would let us push the cigarette lighter in. If we were very careful, we could look at the glowy end. And I got to say, I think it's weird that there was a time that there were so many smokers, that was a standard issue thing in a car. If you were going down the interstate yearning for a burn-in, you could have it right then and there. Like, executives are sitting there thinking, should we add maybe a water cooler? Drinking water is important, and they were like, what are you, an idiot? No. We're going with the, uh, we want an ashtray, we want a cigarette lighter. For years and years. Um, It wasn't a great car. It was carbureted. I remember because my mom would have to start it, and it would warm up forever, and then you could leave. Or in a hurry, she could featherfoot it back. I'm not sure if how many of you have driven a car with a carburetor, but when it's cold, it, it's, it needs to be babied till it gets up to about 15 miles an hour. Then it's okay. But I remember just and back out. It wasn't a great car, um, but I remember when we got rid of it, when we upgraded. I think it was an '86 Dodge 600 that replaced that, and that was an upgrade. Uh, fuel injected. Uh, and a computer on board. That was quite the, the car. But what, I remember when we changed, I was a little bit sad to say goodbye to the Malibu. It was it was just something I was connected with. I'd vomited in the machine. Yeah. Any machine you vomited in, you are connected with yeah. that for the rest of your life. Yeah. It's just kind of hard to yeah. uh, to say goodbye. And I know it's kind of a cheesy way to enter this, but I often feel that way at the end of a book study in the Bible. When I'm really going through it for the last four weeks, we've been, we wanted to look at the topic of what do we do when we pray and God does nothing? And the best subject was to study the book of Habakkuk. And as we've read this, if it were a yearbook, I would write in there, Habakkuk. What a long, strange journey it's been. Uh, we've been with him through a lot. We've connected with him. We've been with him through his disappointment as he lived for a short space of time with a good king who died too young. The nation becomes corrupt. We've seen his confusion as to why, why won't God do anything about the injustice? Why does he seem to not care? We've been through through his shock and horror as God says, I do care. And I'm sending another country to come crush this one to change its heart and to make it different. And yet somehow at the end of all of that, his, his up and down journey, his, his pain is this joy And I think we can connect with any book, but I really feel that Habakkuk is one that makes you connect with it so quickly because he's so candid, he's so honest, he asks really tough questions that we have a hard time asking, and he asks them so courageously. So I want to read, at the end of the book, it ends in an interesting way. It ends with a psalm. All the prophecy back and forth, and it ends with a psalm. And so we're going to pick up a little bit into it. In verse 16, chapter 3, he says... Uh, I have heard, and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. This uh, this book is 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 almost mini apocalyptic. It has so much to do with this this terrible time is coming, this awful tribulation. But don't lose sight because in the end, I will rescue my people. And so uh, a lot of people place this book into what would be called the apocalyptic books. And you know what's interesting? Apocalyptic literature always comes from the exact same context. It always comes in the same context. People wrote it during terrible times. Because if you're going to read about wars and pestilence, and it's, and it's going to be about bulls and, and, and horsemen and all of these terrifying symbols, and yet be encouraged, you would have to be living a pretty awful life. And that was the context of them, because apocalyptic literature, get this, Revelation, Daniel, passages in Ezekiel that deal with the end that's so scary, they are meant to be encouraging. And I know that can seem interesting to us and crazy, but that is what it was meant to be. Because when evil is so powerful, it can be hard to remember that God will win. For Habakkuk in his day, evil is so powerful. It's it's unstoppable, and it's reproducing itself just fine. It's thriving. And it's hard to remember that God is going to win. In good times, when we read apocalyptic literature, we get sidetracked with the Antichrist and with wars and all of these symbols, but if times are really bad, those things begin to seem more common. We become more familiar with antichristal figures, with evil empires, corrupt governments that seem more powerful than us, and as they get pushed to the side, we begin to realize what those books are really about. Revelation isn't about the revealing of the Antichrist, it's the revelation of Jesus into history. The moment when evil gets, the rug pulled out from underneath it and the kingdom of God reigns. And so this book is very much that way. God is victorious, even though the world can throw everything at him. When things are going bad, it's sometimes good to know that if everything's really against me, if Babylon's against me, if the world is against me, when, when the New Testament, when its apocalyptic literature was written, Rome was on a massive persecution. Christians are getting fed to lions and burned alive. And at that moment when the world is against you, it's so important to know they could throw more. It could get worse. They could put everything they want at trying to crush God's kingdom. And in the end, he will endure. The end of human history ends with God and his holy people in victory. And that is a very encouraging thought, especially when you need it. Seeing the end makes a really big difference to Habakkuk. He starts with only seeing the beginning, and now he sees the end, and it is as bad as it gets, God is going to win. When, when things get really, really bad, it's critical to remember the hope of God is inevitable. Not a thing to maybe hope will happen. There is an inevitability about his victory. Babylon will have its moment, but God will certainly end it and establish his people It is bad, and it will be bad for a time, but God and his people, will, he will lead them through it. It's amazing, because in chapter one, the, the book starts with, with Habakkuk saying, how long, how long is this going to take? How long are you going to endure and, and tolerate this evil? How long, how long? And it ends with him saying, I will wait patiently, and the difference is, is that he's shown a small glimpse of the end. When we're really feeling encouraged, I think it's critical that we remember the end. Whatever you're going through, what you're waiting on, that the pain that seems it won't stop, the things that are going on, God's victory in your life is actually inevitable. That at some point, these things are resolved. At some point, it comes to an end. That is a great and grand hope that with roots that go incredibly deep. No matter what you're going through, God can bring an end to it. He will bring an end to it, and such an end is inevitable. We'll read just a little more. He continues on in verse 17. Though the fig tree doesn't bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, and the olive, and uh, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, and though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will be joyful in my God, my Savior. There's something that we can miss here that these aren't just randomly placed things. It's a systematic takedown of everything that country relied on, every single thing. You see, they, they, countries are smart. Even back then, they knew what they were doing and they diversified everything they relied on. If the olive oil crop fails, we've got the wheat. If the wheat fails, we've got barley and the harvest times were all staggered so that you could survive if you had a bad summer. If you had a, an okay autumn, you could still have food. All of these crops are ones that happen at different cycles and they're critical things. If one or more failed, you'd be fine. If they all failed, it's catastrophic. It's a system-wide failing he's describing. We might say something, uh, if we were to put it in similar terms, we might say, if the oil dries up and the power grid fails, if wheat fails around the world, if the market crashes, if the government defaults, if the Federal Reserve can't pay its bills, if there's no food in the grocery store, no law and order, Even then, even then I will praise God. And there's a perfect picture of that attitude that we can find, and it actually happens just a few years after this. The the vision comes true. Judah is crushed, it's destroyed, and its people are pulled out and exiled into Babylon. And while they're there, three of them are in service to the king. And everyone in in the kingdom is told, especially the officials, you must take part in the state religion or you will be killed very common law at the time. And the death penalty was going to be severe. They were going to be burned alive. And as they're told, you need to right now take part in our state religion and forsake your God, or we're going to throw you into the furnace right now. This is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply. Probably not all in unison. They probably agreed upon it. We'll say Shadrach is speaking, okay? (laughs) King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image or the gold you have set up. And that's this amazing thing to have this declaration of faith. We think God will do it, but just for the record, if he does nothing, he is worthy of all of our praise. There's a song by Mercy Me called Even If, and when they interviewed the songwriters about it, they said what it was about is that they came to a conviction that if God did nothing from here on out, they never hear from him, he, he seems to be completely devoid of their life, that he would still be worthy of their praise every single day if he did nothing more because of all that he's done and all who he is. <laughs> I'm sorry, every time he's not. No laughing, we honor. Um, the truth is, is that God is faithful and he does show up. And yet there comes a point when we have to be able to confess that even if this doesn't happen, even if it were to fail, I would still worship God. And it is a deeply heart-changing moment for us all. That the, in the face of such disappointment and horror, Habakkuk can say the worst could happen if every single thing falls apart and we're brought to our knees. I will still praise you. And I find something really remarkable about this guy, Habakkuk. In My notes i have been calling him Hab. One thing I find amazing about Hab is that his best, it comes from his worst. And that's true of you too. The best things that you have to offer this world come from your worst moments, the hardest things you've gone through. Because God is too good to let a horrible cavern of pain be carved in your life and to not plant equally deep roots of health. I think about some of the hard things we went through uh, as members of the church recently. When the COVID layoffs happened, it affected Dave. Dave worked hard and battled his way to find work, to get a job and to come forward. And it was not easy. It wasn't a thing that was really um, went smoothly. It was hard to find work, especially work that supports a home. And yet, uh, working with Dave on counsel uh, and just seeing the things God's done in that cavern to where Dave has an incredible heart of just compassion and mercy in the way he handles resources, that uh, I know that God has done deep work in that life. Last week, I shared a story uh, whelping a little bit about my own thing I'm waiting on. Elaine and I don't own a home. We'd love to. But, uh, you know, financial ruination has been my life so far, so... uh, I was sharing that, Dave, or not, excuse me, Dave, uh, Scott Horsfall comes up to me afterward and shared a story about his own time in the exact same phase of life I was of just wanting to get underneath the the renting trap and wanting to buy and how hard it was and how he had to buy it in this market crash and that one and how God provided these incredible things. And he told this story with uh, uh, so much depth and it was so encouraging to hear from someone from just the depth of their heart, what they went through that from some of the worst things that he encountered, Dave encountered, that you've encountered, that's where some of the greatest wells of spiritual health and wisdom and care come from in your life. A giant crater becomes a valley when it's under conditions of rainfall and sunshine. And a crater of pain can become a valley of your life when it's under the conditions of faith and praise if we have a life to where we have trust in God and faith in what he's doing, we can praise him even when things are going bad. We don't put a condition out of God, things must go well, then I can praise you. Then both the good things and bad things that happen to you become building blocks to make you stronger. And we can endure. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. That if the worst befalls us, we can still praise him. God does never let destruction or ruination become our lives. And maybe we could pray something like Habakkuk does where we say, yes, yet I will still rejoice in the Lord and be joyful in my God, my savior. There's a lesson he learns, and it's so poetic because honestly, it's the whole point of the exile. And he learns it first. As this prophet, as this messenger, he gets it first. That the God of the promise is superior to the promise. That the God of the promise is superior to the promise. It took Israel being pulled out of their promised land and being shoved elsewhere. And God pursuing them, going with them, protecting them, ministering to them in that other place that made them realize that Yahweh was greater than the promised land. That he was greater than the things he gives us. There's an incredible growth that happens when we realize that God is better than even his promises. Of all the things God gives us, God is the best thing in life. At the end of a person's life, they don't say, quick, my time is short. Please bring to me three months' pay stubs for my most profitable moment in life that I could look upon them. Nobody says, bring my property, deeds, or bring my degrees, accolades, present to me my published works. It's remarkable. Across cultures and upbringings, people want the same thing. They want people with them. They want family. They want friends. That is what people want to see at the end of their life because they find out that relationships mattered most. Deathbeds aren't crowded with things. Deathbeds are crowded with people. And though a dying man could lay there and think to himself, everything in my life, the the home I live in, the job I have, the things that I have, they come from my relationships. We really are a, a, a product of our relationships. And yet, laying there, he knows it's the relationships themselves that mattered most. It's those people. And so it is with God. In the end, having God means more than having the promise, having God means more than having the promise. It's the reward at the end and it's one you don't have to wait for. And maybe the promise, maybe the things you're waiting on, the the resolve to pain and conflict, the resolve to torment is way over there. God is with you right here. And it's true that that our destiny is to be closer to Him in eternity than we can even be now. But God's presence is still with you right now. You're waiting on a lot of things. The greatest thing you're ever waiting for is with you now. The spirit that goes with you, that advocates for you, that is with you and within you. And Habakkuk's final encouragement to us is this. In verse 19, he ends this Psalm saying, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to tread uh, on the heights. God's joy makes us sure-footed. This term uh, can refer to many things, but the most common things people are certain it refers to is the Nubian Ibex. Nubian Ibexes are uh, numerous there. And the, the particulars are referring to the females, which are known for being incredibly uh, uh, well-balanced. They could stand on just about nothing. They live safely and command their entire life on cliff edges. And they're as sure-footed standing right there as they are in the flat plains. And they're referred to again and again in ancient literature for how they bound so gracefully and joyfully one thing to the next. You know, we pray so often, God, give me more solid ground beneath my feet. Give me more space to stand on something to, to, to feel secure in when perhaps the prayer of Habakkuk is so enlightening, God, make me sure-footed on the little ground that I am standing on, so that I could leap from one thing to the next and command my life on cliff edges, just as well as if I were standing in the middle of a valley. That I could have faith that, that this little rock I'm standing on right now might not be enough to live my whole life on, but God will provide the next for me to jump onto and the next thing to go to, because you will spend your life in the same spot Habakkuk is in now. You will spend it waiting, So get really good at waiting. Get really good and sure-footed on those high spots, those cliffs, as we wait in between and not saying, I'll be joyful when I have it. But being joyful right now because we already have the greatest reward in life, the spirit of God that lives within you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that uh, we would feel some connection with our friend Habakkuk and all we've gone through with him. May we identify with that. And God, I pray that your spirit would begin to come and minister to us that which you ministered even to him so long ago. That we also could be sure-footed in uncertain times. That we could look at this world and see it's evil and say, you know what, it could get worse. And God would still be worthy of praise. It could get worse and my hope wouldn't even be forsaken. Lord, I pray that we could be sure-footed where we are that though we wait for promises, that we also could be like a deer that can leap and bound from cliff edges to command a life so safely and comfortably and joyfully, though we stand on mere rocks. Don't let us live like the world that needs to feel so much ground under its feet to ever feel at peace, only to stand there and really realize they never had it. For peace comes not from the little rewards of life, the money, the resources, the things we wait on. It comes from the greatest, the God that's with us in the cliffs and with us in those difficult moments. May true joy be our inheritance though we live a life of waiting. Help us to be great at waiting. Give us faith for the hard things that we're going through that one day it will be a wellspring of life that you will not have let something cut so deep to not transplant something of great health within us. And let us walk every single day sure-footed in your promises. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Many ways that we can honor fathers on Father's Day. One of the best ones is to get out of church five minutes early. You're welcome, dads. You've got ribs to check in on things to look at. We love you all. Uh, If you're interested in water baptism, talk to me. Talk to Jason in the beautiful shirt. You guys have a great week.